Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. People can change anything they want to. And that means everything in the world. Show me any country and there'll be people in it. It's time to take the humanity back into the center of the ring and follow that for a time. You know, think on that. Without people, you're nothing. Without people, you're nothing. Stoke the fire. Squint. (laughs) It is. It's going to be like this. And on that note, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Stoke the Fire. As always, we are your hosts, Jesse Leach and Matthew Stocks. Bristol and Woodstock is where you find us right now. It's where we find ourselves, wherever you are. I hope you're well. I hope life's treating you good. Thank you, as always, for the support with this show. Um, Any news? Your side of the world, Jesse, what's going on? You're about to go on tour, aren't you? I am, and uh, the sun has shown its face after many weeks of not seeing it. So it's beautiful outside. The birds are chirping, and I'm in a great mood, man. Love it. Well, dude, this weekend, I have my first live shows of the year. Wow. The O2 Arena. Oh, that's right. The biggest shows of my life. I'm hosting Monster Trucks Live for Hot Wheels. It's unlike anything I've ever done before. All I've been doing for the last week to 10 days straight is just reading the script watching the videos having zoom rehearsals with alex baker the guy i'm co-hosting the shows with i'm i'm not terrified but i'm definitely apprehensive just because there's so many moving parts to the show there's so much to like absorb and try and like understand um and the size of the the room is like twelve thousand people or something in the o2 arena biggest shows of my life so the next time we talk i'll be able to tell you how they went but i'll tell you what man i'm just stoked that they're going ahead first yeah. and foremost that's wild dude good for you that sounds like a lot of fun and monster trucks are very loud as well so i'm sure you'll be experiencing a bit of the old tinnitus when you come back <laughs> bit of casual tonight as to start yeah. the year and the next time we talk um because this will be maybe maybe you'll be on tour maybe you won't but i hope soon on the show we can talk about you know being back out on the road not only with kill switch but with howard in yeah. like the torch as well so uh, we look forward to some i'm sure amazing stories from that experience and you must be thrilled to be you know revving that tour back up because you did what like two or three dates and then the world came crushing down. Yeah, it was on the yeah, it was on after the second date on that third, you know, the third day was the day off, and that's when they shut us down. So this is making up for lost time and helping people who had bought tickets and didn't get refunded or it's a huge if we get this tour done, it's gonna be a huge breath of relief to like just finally make it up to all of our fans. So Not if, good. Yeah. when. Yeah, when I know, I know when. It's coming. So our guest this week is a listener. It's been a while since we've done one of these. And that's a key part of this show is, you know, sharing the stories of not just musicians and and creative people that you know, but just of of regular Joes like myself and Jesse who are out there just trying to make sense of the world. Uh, This email came through 
a couple of months back and it was one that I starred and I'm really pleased that we got around to, to getting him on the show today. Chris Stewart is his name. If you're watching this and you can see me squinting, it's because I've just opened his email. I'm going to attempt to read it out. It's pretty long. So if I skip some stuff, Chris, you can fill in the blanks when you come on the show. But Chris reached out to us. He said, hey, Jesse and Matt, first off, I want to say I love the show. Uh, my story is unique in the way that I started off as a missionary kid. But after one too many arguments with my dad over hair length and music, I bailed, which is a story I know you can relate to, Jesse. Not the bailing part, but certainly the fallout with parents over musical taste growing up. Uh, Chris goes on to say, I wasn't a bad kid or in trouble. I was even pretty well liked, um, but I left home when I was 15 and moved to Hollywood to become Nikki Six. Incredible. But instead, I got involved in LA street gangs, drugs, and all of that. Um, I eventually ended up marrying the VP of marketing for Activision, whose first game was Tony Hawk Pro Skater back in 2000. I'm sure we all remember that game. Um, we had a house in Santa Monica, and I thought I'd proved everybody wrong. The only problem was I was addicted to heroin, alcohol, coke, you name it. Um, and when I couldn't quit and didn't want to quit, um, I couldn't. And she kicked me out and I lived in my car for about a month until that got towed. And then I ended up on the corner of Euchre and Wilcox in Hollywood, living in the bushes uh, until I finally landed in Skid Row downtown LA. Um, now, there's a lot more after this. There's a lot, 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 lot more. Needless to say, you know, there is a turnaround along the way. And, and then we get on the road to redemption, as we've often found in these stories. So rather than spoiling it and sharing every detail in the email and just giving my eyes a rest because I was struggling there to read the whole thing, let's just get him onto the show. Let's allow him the platform to tell his story himself. Um, Chris Stewart, the hope dealer. Welcome Love to Stoke the Fire. I love it. Hey, thanks a lot, man. Uh, you know, I just want to say it's an honor to be on this show today. And I respect you both so much. And, you know, what What I love so much about this show is it's not even about what, what you guys talk about. It's that you allow the platform to even exist. You know, I, I'm a speaker. I travel and I talk to churches. I talk to high schools. I talk to in conferences and all these things. And, you know, like you guys are visionaries. You don't know it now, but I'm telling you, 10 years from now, when we look back, we're going to be like stoked to fire, man. That was like one of the very first podcasts of people that actually came from a hardcore community, came from a place of, of you know, what we like. I guess it's been called on the show, maybe brokenness or, or being lost yeah. and, and presented, you know, not just celebrity stories, but but also people that, you know, have the same story. They just didn't know, it, you know. And uh, anyway, like I said, it's it's a it's an honor to be on your show, and, and uh, I'm just so excited, man. I'll tell you what, I'm gonna give Stigma a run for his money. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> I'm coming for you, Vinny. I'm your West Coast brother. He knows it too. I know him since 1985. But yeah, uh, yeah, you know what I mean. You put two of us together in a room, man. I'm glad we don't. We're not on the same show, or else we'd be on here for days. You know what I mean? We'd never get you guys out of here. You'd miss the monster truck rally. You'd miss the tour. <laughs> well, never say never. We might make that happen one day. Um, dude, what you've just said there has kind of given me goosebumps, and I'm sure Jesse feels the same. Like, we, we had a certain intention in our mind when we launched this show, but what it's become and what it continues to become every day um, as it evolves and grows is so far beyond anything we could have ever dreamed of. And it is about, you know, that community that we come back to all the time as, as you've picked up on and that's really cool that you have and, and the things you kind of highlight there I don't think even we were completely aware of because 
you're right. A lot of podcasts, it's just the host or one other guy with him. And they just kind of, you know, inflate each other's egos and pontificate and just go on and on and on and on and on about their own thoughts without any kind of awareness of, of a world outside. And what we're trying to do here is the exact opposite of that is open the door and bring people in. And a lot of the time, just sit back and let them, you know, share their story. And then we can just learn about them and ourselves along the way. So you get it. And that means a lot. Those words are very kind. Indeed. Yeah, thank 100%, you. Man. You know, and, and just to even kind of go off that before we get started is, you know, it's, it's so cool. You know, I always have a call to action. You know, when I'm giving a talk as a motivational speaker, we used to get to the end and I say, here's my call to action. But today I want to give my call to action right off the bat. And that is, is that, man, share your stories. You know, like all the listeners, people that are listening, you got to share stories. And I think that's kind of becoming this new, let's say, mental health world is that we only want to share the stories of the, like the darkest times, right? We call this being vulnerable, right? Where we're like, oh, you know, I remember when I had the gun to my head or, or when I took all those pills or, you know, when I was sexually assaulted or, you know, like we always can't, but what about the good stuff? You know, like, it, like when I'm listening to this, like, you know, when you guys were doing the show with Stigma, right? Like, he was like, yeah, my good buddy, Jesse Mallon. I'm like, dude, I know Jesse Mallon. He's a good buddy of mine. And when he was like, yeah, and Jamie Justice started this, you know, it started my solo project. And I'm like, man, I remember when D Snyder told me that uh, Jamie started his solo project, you know, and, and, and when you guys talk about that and, you know, and, and Jesse and, and Corinne getting engaged, you know, in that whole cool part. And then you guys talking about what it's like to be in a relationship with somebody who's on the road. And, you know, like my relationship, that was a big challenge. You know what I mean? Cause I'm looking at other guys, right? I'm looking at like guys like Tommy Lee, right? And there's you know, like, Hey, this is how you get a woman. This is how you act. That's not how you get a woman. That's not how you act. Right. And then Jesse's coming on and saying, hey, man, I got bad days. And some days I just got to tell her, like, hey, I can't hang with you or whatever. It doesn't mean I don't like you. It just means that's where I'm at. And I'm like, oh, you could say that? I thought if you said that, right, that would mean that, oh, we're breaking up. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I think it's really cool that, you know, the youth of today or, or even somebody my age, right, gets to, gets to hear other people talk about the good times and, and, and how that plays back, right, and about all the great shows we've gone to. And, you know, I put that also in the email you know, there's a few times in my life that, you know, let's say, let's just start with, you know, I have a book, it's called Prayers, Punk Rock and Pastry, and we'll, we'll get to that. But, you know, punk rock has been such a key part of my life because, you know, getting back to when I left home that day, you know, the first place I went was downtown Portland, Oregon. And, and it was me and like four other kids. And those kids didn't have a home either. Right. And we were like little punks. We had our little skateboards, our little Mohawks or whatever, we're listening to DRI or whatever. And, and that was the only family that I had. And I had no place to sleep. I had, you know, nothing to do. And those were the kids that took me in. And, and now, you know, 30 years later, I can say I get that same feeling when I go to hardcore shows. Right. I put it in there. But, man, there was a time I saw a kill switch just a couple years ago at the Palladium, man. And I remember just looking around. And I'm sure you guys have been there, too. Right. And you're seeing the building is just moving. You know what I mean? And like everybody's just cranking and everybody's rocking. And we don't have a care in the world. Right. And the thing that I've always loved about hardcore that I have not seen in any other community and, and thing is I'm part of the faith based community. Right. I love God. So I'm not saying anything against sin. I'm part of the recovery community. I love that. But I have not seen this there yet either. But what I've seen in the hardcore community since I was 15 years old, standing on the side of the stage with agnostic front playing is that when one falls down, everybody stops, picks them up and we carry on. Yeah. We, we don't, we don't, we don't stop and go, Hey, how come you fell down? Were you being a jerk? <laughs> right. We, we don't, we don't, we don't stop and be, Hey, you know what? You fell down. Cause you're too drunk. You shouldn't be here. 
right? Or, or, or you fell down. Oh, did somebody push you? Should we hurt them? No. Well, you know, it's not like we do in these other communities. Like, oh, you, you, walk, you walked away from the church. Why? Were you not reading your Bible? You know, like we try and blame something, right? Like, oh, you, oh, you relapsed on heroin or, or alcohol. Oh, you weren't calling your sponsor. Dude, what are you, what are you doing, man? That's not how it works. Right. We, we need to, everybody needs to stop. When somebody goes down, we need, all need to stop just like in, in the hardcore community man, and lift them up. Be like, OK, you OK? OK, let's go again. Let's go again. You're still breathing. There's still time. Let's go again. And, and that's one thing that, you know, I've always just loved about that. And I'll tell you, man, I see that at Kill Switch shows. I see that at Hate Breed shows. And, uh, and I really see that at Pennywise, man. I don't know if you guys have ever seen Pennywise live, but when they do bro him, I mean, there's not a dry eye in the room, even 20 years later. You know what I mean? Kids that are 10 years old are here in Broham, and you see them, like, getting all teared up. Like, what are you crying for, dude? You're 10 years old. He's like, I don't know. It's just a feeling in the air, man. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's what we need more of, man. Bottle that up, right? That'll help us with a lot of stuff. So, anyway, I just really want to start off with that call to action. You know, I'm like, let's share about the good stuff, too, man. We got to keep hope alive. They don't come with hope dealer for nothing, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I love Living it. Living up to the name. That's such a good metaphor for life there, what you just said. And that is exactly why I found myself in hardcore at a young age. It was exactly that reason that, you know, you, you get knocked down, pick back up, you're not bleeding, keep going. I love that attitude. That's, that's great. What a great way to start. I love it. Hell yeah, dude. So let's go back to the move to LA. Um, what year do you move out there? And this is like the peak of glam, hair metal, sunset strip, all that stuff. What's going on, is it? Yeah, 100 percent. So the year was 1985. And, uh, you know, like I said, it, it had been Christmas Day and, you know, my dad gave me a bus ticket and I, and I went to back to Portland, Oregon, where I were at my grandma's house a couple hours away. And, and I got there and that's when I was hanging out with those kids. And I ended up getting taken into, uh, you know, what we call a, a, like a punk rock house or a squat house with a friend of mine, Dell. And, um, you know, he's, he had a band called Lockjaw and they were the ones that opened up for Agnostic Front. So that's how I got to be on the side of the stage that day. Right. And, and he was kind of like my older brother, you know, he kind of took me in and uh, that was in December. And then uh, around February, he said, hey, man, I'm going to L.A. to start a band. Do you want to go? And, you know, he was a little bit older than me. And uh, but, you know, being even 15, I'm like, yeah, man, I said, I've been waiting my whole life. Right. Since I first, you know, snuck into my neighbor's friend's older brother's room when I was seven years old. And we were looking at you know, all the pictures on his wall. And we were seeing like Kiss and ACDC and Playboy Bunnies. And I remember just turning to him going, man, whatever it takes to get a room like this, I'm going <laughs> to do. Right? But then I went back home that night for dinner. And we had, a, and we had a, a sign above our door right when he walked into our house and says, in this house, we will serve the Lord. And I knew that right then I had a dilemma. You know what I mean? Because what I had seen and what I had forecasted and then where my actual reality was were completely different things. And um. You know, when I left home at 15, I remember I got on that bus, you know, that Greyhound bus that day, and it hadn't really hit me. But when I sat down and I was pulling out and I looked around, I had this little backpack and this skateboard. That's all I got. And I'm like, man, like I'm all alone. You know, like I've been I've been tossed aside. That's it, man. Like, you know, my, my parents don't love me because of my looks. That's what I told myself. Right. The, the people at church aren't behind me anymore because my dad's against me and and, and, and my friends from school have just like, they probably don't even know where I am right now, you know, because this is before cell phones and all this other stuff. And I thought I'm all alone. And, you know, and I got angry and I'm like, you know what, God, F you, man. You know what I mean? Like, this isn't I didn't do nothing wrong. Right. And same with my dad and everybody else. And I said, it's me against the world. So it was actually in that moment that I really went for the music. And I was like, you know what? 
the only way I know how to get back is to become world famous. And when I get world famous, I'm going to show everybody you guys made the mistake, not me, you know? And it's like that anger. And, and you know, and, and now obviously, you know, you know, I'm a counselor and things like that. So I've gone back and, you know, we realize anger is like the secondary emotion. Right. And, and, and so it's like typically what's behind that is all this fear and sadness or whatever. And, and those were emotions I just couldn't process, man. When you're 15 years old, you know, now you're like still trying to fit in. Right. You're looking around like, hey, I got the same shoes as you. Are we cool? Like, you know, I play football. You play football. I don't know. And um, and so I was like, I took on that anger. So when he said, do you want to move to L.A.? I was like, yeah, man, absolutely. 15 years old. You know, and it's funny because I think uh, Billy was talking about this the other day. In, in her show, but, um, you know, being like going around and actually talking to high schools now and seeing like these 15 year old kids and going like, what? Like I was that age and I was like living on the streets of LA. Like, what was I thinking, man? I must've been out of my mind. You know what I mean? These kids can barely wipe their noses. You know what I mean? And, uh, <laughs> that's the thing is when you, when you are that age, you think you're an adult, don't you? Uh, and yeah. so you're conducting yourself in the world with the confidence of a fully grown human being. But then when you become an adult and you see a child, you realize like that's such a young, innocent, vulnerable age to be living on you the know, streets of Los Angeles as well. I can't even imagine dude. Yeah. You know, and, and, and you're exactly right because in my own mind, right. I'm like, I'm cool. I'm big. You know, I remember going to these, you know, there's be these huge shows and, you know, and the thing is, is we had nowhere to live. So like we stayed in his van or, or, you know, we, we, you know, that's the thing about punk rock, even back then, like they'd always let you crash on the floor or something, you know what I mean? So you'd meet some other kids like, Oh man, you can just sleep over here. Or, or my parents are cool. They're, they're, they're never at home anyway. You can just stay with us. And, and so I stayed with friends for a long time, but you know, getting back into like the gang life, you know, let's talk about that for a minute because you know, what happened is, is I was just kind of like suburban, like I said, missionary kid. I was like good athlete. I mean, you know, and I've spent my whole life with this whole, like, I can still be a rock and roller and a man of God. You know what I mean? And, and it's like, you're like little I mean, Richard, mate. That was his dilemma, yeah. wasn't it? He wants to be a I servant of God and he wants to dance with the devil. <laughs> right. And I tell people, it's, it's like, that's how music I think started, man. Even back in the day, right. If you look at even in biblical times, right. Like you had King Saul, right. He would be like out of his mind with anger. And then David would pick up the harp and, you know, pluck a few notes or whatever. And it like calm him down, you know, and it's like, how do we not see that? You know what I mean? But yeah, little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, all those guys, Robert Johnson, right. We've always had this kind of duality and, but you know, but when I got into the gang stuff, you know what I mean? People don't, I don't think you, unless you've really been in a gang, people don't appreciate the family aspect of what a gang brings to a teenage kid. Mm. Right. I mean, there's a reason why we look around this country and we see hundreds of thousands of kids in gangs doing activities they don't need to be doing it's because nobody else is there to mentor them nobody else is there to give them words of encouragement you know maybe they don't have a dad or or maybe you know i don't know whatever that looks like right but it's like but that that, that provides that that sense of support right and for me i mean i joined a skinhead gang you know and and thing is, is this wasn't like neo-nazi skinhead gangs man back in in these days it was like you know like nazi front skinhead right like we were just the working class it's like that meant i had a job and that meant that I actually had a few more morals, let's say, and values than some of like the real, you know, what they would call, you know, scummy punks or, or some of the kids that would just hang around and get drunk or high on heroin all day and and then, you know, beg money or whatever. Right. This is obviously before I got into heroin. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, what I mean, so that's what it was. So, 
you know, for me to be in this gang, I actually felt proud. It was like, hey, man, I got these guys. And I was like the youngest kid. Obviously, I was 16 at that point. I turned 16 on March 15th. And, and we actually moved to L.A. on April 1st, I think. So it was, you know, I just turned 16. But, you know, to be in this gang, it was like these guys all had jobs. They were men, right? They were they were like, you know, they were good. They were nice to women. They weren't going around spitting on people. They weren't, you know, hurting people necessarily. Unless it was like, you know. But we'd go to these shows, you know, like Long Beach, like at Fenders in Long Beach, you know, and, and then downtown L.A. at the Olympic Auditorium. And it would just be chaos, man, because you'd have like four or 5,000 punk rockers from every part of L.A., and everybody would be in their own little gang. And then you'd get there and then one guy drink too much and get mad at another guy. And then we'd start to huge 30 or 40 person brawls. And the point of this is just that it went from being a safe family environment to such a chaotic environment that like, I couldn't handle it. You know what and, I mean? Like, and and, and at the flip of a dime, right? Like, yeah. like that. I'm like, like I'd never even been in a fist fight. You know what I mean? Like maybe we'd gotten like a little tussles with some friends, but like I hadn't been in like full blown adult male on male punching each other until teeth were knocked out and noses were over here and, and baseball bats would come in or, or whatever was going on in that situation, you know, in the punk rock scene, it was always more of like a, it wasn't really like the shooting, you know, it wasn't like in like with the Crips and the Bloods or, or the Suicidals or, 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 you know, the Latino gangs and stuff like that, where it was just instantly you got shot in the punk rock scene. in in that particular time, it was always, it was just like fighting, you know what I mean? Like to the, to the death almost, you know? So the reason why I share that is because, of course, when I turned 17 and, and, and somebody that I trusted offered me a little bit of heroin, I was like, oh, you know what? Like, and, and they were smoking it, right? That was the thing. Like, people, you know, I'd always thought this whole thing about heroin act, right? I was just like, you know, dude, I saw under the bridge with a trench coat and he was all beat up and gross and, and using needles. And then when some, you know, clean cut guy that I knew that I trusted came on and, and threw a little bit down on some foil and it was like, hey, you want to trust? I'm like, what is that? And he goes, it's heroin. I was like, oh, you can smoke it? I didn't even know. But it's like the minute I smoked it, because I'd already smoked weed and cigarettes and all that. So I figured, how bad can it be? Right. But what I didn't realize is that that little bit of heroin that day was going to completely take away all that massive fear and anxiety that I had about just leaving my house anymore, about getting into fist fights or getting knocked down by another gang or, or trying to survive in a world or, or whatever I was doing. And it would become my solution. See, that's the one thing that I know, I know you guys have a little bit of understanding about, but. The one thing that people don't understand about addiction is that drugs and alcohol are never the problem. They are always the solution. That's it, man. And that's what people outside of the rooms of recovery, they don't understand. Like, if we just take it away, you'll be fine. Like, no, don't take it away. You got to give me something else that I can believe in so that I can separate myself from that. Right. And it doesn't matter what it is, what the addiction is. That's how that works. Right. You don't just take it away. Then I got nothing. And then I become suicidal. Right. Yeah, I think you just made a really good point. I think that's not talked about enough, especially in the public forum. You know, in recovery, it's talked about all the time, you know, as far as the the disassociation or the disconnectivity that we feel deep down inside is what leads us to the addiction, which leads us to like want to overcompensate for things that we didn't have, whether that's a family, a home, um, abusive relationships that we come from, or just, you know, the the way your brain is with mental illness. There's so many so many facets of it, but it all points to connectivity as humans. We need to be able to connect with each other when you don't have that and you, you can find it in these substances that give you this temporary thing. And heroin's a powerful one, a powerful one. Uh, that's one that just completely, I mean, you look at alcohol, you look at weed, those are minor, but heroin just gives you a 100%, like a blanket of, you know, I, 
have to say I have done it once when I was younger and I, I smoked it myself. And uh, thankfully it freaked me out because it was so all encompassing and warm and like that feeling it made me uncomfortable. But every other person I know that has gotten addicted, that's, that's a powerful drug because of what it does. And it just soothes you. But I think the main point you just made right there is, is a good one about connectivity and addiction is all tied into that, that lack of like feeling like you can connect with somebody or a family or a friend and that desire to just want to be accepted and loved. Yeah. You know, and, and th that's the whole thing too. And, and one thing that I hear people say a lot is right. Is that the opposite of addiction is connection. And, and I want to put a little spin on that because well, I feel that that's a huge part of it. I also feel that the option or the opposite of addiction is actually spirituality. Mm. And, and what I mean by spirituality is the ability to sit with yourself and, and trust your own intuition. Right. Mm. And because, you know, I mean, obviously there's a lot of different religions and I don't want to turn this into a, a religious show or, or, you know what I'm saying? Like going down that rabbit hole, I, I want to kind of stick to what we're, what this show really focuses on and that is that spirituality it's just it's a basis of being able to sit with yourself and be okay with yourself right and, and get back to that inner channeling of, of hearing what your, the voice is in your heart because the thing is i tell people this all the time i'm like you know the answer to every single question you ever ask the challenge is is that you want somebody else to validate it mm -hmm. right before you make the move that's it right if, if all of us ask like is this going to be a great show today? Yeah, we know it's going to be a great show. How do we know it? Well, we don't, but we're going to trust our intuition that you know what you're doing and you know what you're doing and I know what I'm doing. And so it should be a great show, right? And, and we're all here for the same reason, right? So that would be the connection. Do you see what I'm saying? But the intention that we set, first of all, before we even came on today was that this was going to be a great show and that we were going to help people, right? And, and so I like to throw that in on the opposite of addiction because you really need something more than just connection. And the reason why I bring this up is because, you know, after working in treatment myself for years and, and being, you know, part of the recovery community, if it was just connection, man, that mean we could put us all in these big dormitories, right? Put a hundred addicts in a dormitory and we'd all be fine. Right. Oh, you know what? We replaced the drugs and alcohol. Now I got a bunch of roommates and we're all cool. And we just watch sports <laughs> together. It, you know, <laughs> it would go and, the and other way. It would turn into chaos and hell very quick. I'm yeah, sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and, and we know that that doesn't work, right? Because people go to treatment and they get put in these houses where if connection was the opposite, then everybody would be fine. And then what happens? 90 days later, six of them get out, four of them relapse, maybe one or two stay sober. So that doesn't work, right? Yeah. The moment you said that, I, I was like, yeah, he's totally right. <laughs> the moment you're like, it's, it's about that, you know, sitting with yourself. That's, that's totally valid. I'm, and I'm glad I said what I said, because this, this is good. So keep going. <laughs> this is great, dude. So no, it's, it's great. It's because it's so true. You're absolutely right. You're at nail on the head. Could we go into how quickly the descent takes place from that first time you smoked heroin? How quickly do things spiral out of control? And then where does that lead before either you're able to yourself or somebody else gives you the support and incentive to pull yourself out, turn your life around and get on the path you're on now? Yeah, 100 percent. It was a long period. Um, you know, Matt, that's such a great question because people have it in their minds. And I'm sure Jesse knows this, too, from being around a lot of the same circles, is that it's either an all or nothing thing. Right. Like. 
I was able to still drink for a decade and, and, you know, and not really have any consequences. I, I was able to still use heroin for quite some time and not really have any consequences. Now, what I was doing to myself, people might argue that that was, you know, because I was just ignoring all the problems. Right. And so, you know, if we look at first time I used it at 17 to when, you know, at 25, I started losing jobs and, and then people started to kind of know me as a junkie. Right. And then, so there was some of that shame. And, and that's the other thing real quick that I want to point out is that a lot of people talk about how much shame they have from their addiction. What they don't realize is that the addiction was actually the cure for their shame. You know what I mean? Because once we start looking at that, people look back like, you, you don't have shame about stealing 20 bucks from your girlfriend and buying dope. Well, you have shame because at eight years old, you went to school one day and a kid said, hey, that shirt you're wearing, I sold that in a garage sale last week. And you're like, ter- and you're like humiliated because you know that your poor mom, this is actually happening to me. Like, you know, like we were so poor. My mom had bought our, our back to school clothes at a neighbor's garage sale. And I walked in thinking I'm cool with my little Star Wars tee, right? And the kid goes, hey, that used to be my shirt. I threw it away. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, man, now I'm a loser right? <laughs> or whatever that little eight-year-old pee on brain says. And so, like, that's what happened. So, like, by the time I got the addiction, man, I had so much shame. I didn't need the addiction to give me any more shame. You know what I mean? So when people say that, I would say, I would say man, look back before and, and actually see where the real shame is because if we don't address that, you're not going to be able to turn your life around and make a difference right but getting back to what your question is is you know what when i got married that was i think really the catalyst you know because i started using it at 17 i got married about 30 and 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 i love my wife and we're still good friends to this day and is this the um, woman who worked for activision yeah and, i mean and, very, uh, just very know, quickly that must have been a very exciting time to be around you know, that world, because that game changed culture on such a huge level. Like it reintroduced skateboarding to an entire new generation of people. It introduced so many of the bands that, you know, from the punk and hardcore scene to a global audience. Like if you're from the world that us three are all from, that game was like a, you know, a landslide moment in popular culture. And you were obviously right there on the front line, you know, well, at least with a good spectator seat to the development yeah. of it. Well, and you know what, like <laughs> I want to come back to your question, but let's, let's go down a little rabbit hole and just talk about how that game came because you guys will think this is fascinating. And I'm sure a lot of people listening will too. So at the time that me and my wife were together, right. And like I said, you know, to be this successful, to be able to buy a house in Santa Monica after coming from, you know, LA and, and, you know, and like living over, you know, in, in Hollywood and that little studio apartment that all musicians live in for like eight years where there's roaches running over your face every day. And you're just like, I one day I want to make it big, you know? And, and, and so to be like in that neighborhood, right. Like we're in a neighborhood and all of a sudden I'm like, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to be this like good fellas neighbor. You know what I mean? I was wearing like the shark skin suits. I'm like, Hey, how you doing? You know what I mean? Trying to be like the mayor of the neighborhood, which I am still to this day, but, um, but you know what was cool is that so I had a job, right? And this is kind of like my first job out of rock and roll or whatever. And uh, I was like a facilities guy for a company called E-Toys. And part of my job was to go around in between the buildings over there in Santa Monica where my wife worked and um, and, and like refill kitchens and paper and stuff. And I, so I would do it on a skateboard. And so her boss one day was like looking out the window because we worked in the same complex or whatever and he kept seeing me skating over and jumping off cars and just doing stupid stuff and he, and he went to her he's like hey man i always see your husband like riding this skateboard like we should have like a skateboarding game right 
And so she came home that night. She goes, hey, you know, my boss, you know, I can't remember what his name was, but, you know, he thinks we should do a, a skateboarding game because he's always seen you cruise around the parking lot. I said, dude, don't talk to me, man. Talk to somebody like Tony Hawk. That guy's a real, like, I'm, I'm just a, a scrapper. You know what I mean? And so all of a sudden some calls were made. And then he came in and all of a sudden, that like, that's how that whole thing was created. And then because I had come from the punk rock and hard, you know, metal community my whole life. And, and my wife was into that too. She was like, kind of like the one she was like, hey, why don't you call so-and-so and have them see if they want to be on this game? Why don't you call like Tim and Larson Ransom? Why don't you call, you know, like Social Distortion? Why don't you call Pennywise? Why don't you call like, you know, Motley Crue or like, you know, whatever the bands were at the time. I can't remember, but it was mostly punk rock bands, right? Because we wanted to keep it like, kind of like that whole genre. And like, that's how that happened. It was super organic, like around the kitchen table, like, hey, my boss wants to do a skateboarding game. What do you think? And I was like, well, why don't we call Tony Hawk and why don't we call Rancid and see if we can put it together? You know what I mean? And then all of a sudden now look at it, right? Like who, who would have thought, you know what I mean? Like that little conversation was going to lead to that. Um, Dude, is, what, is, is the guy Ralph D'Amato, does that name ring a bell? It rings a bell, but I can't place a face. Because I had him on my show a while back, and yeah, he was like the guy, who, the game developer. But it's, I mean, it's a fascinating period in in a kind of alternative culture because it was when the alternative yeah. culture stormed the gates and became the mainstream. Yeah, all because you're riding around on a skateboard doing your deliveries, <laughs> right? Probably like Napoleon blown apart out of my mind. You know, what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> just trying to like sneak a beer behind the car and ride my skateboard. And not get caught, but- how did um, how did you get from from homelessness to being in a skinhead gang to living in a house with a, a woman who worked for the game company? What what was the transition between those to like where that happened? Where's the gap? Fill in that gap for me because I'm super curious. Yeah, so I was you know first I was like this homeless teen right, which would, would like really help me out being homeless later. And then I started playing in bands and, and hanging out and I was living in LA and, and then I moved up to San Francisco um, to get out of LA to get, get away from the drugs and, and to kind of restart my life. And that's where I met my wife actually. Um, and she was from Boston and, um, and, you know, and then we were part of like the swing scene for a while too, not the swinger scene, but the actual like swing music. So I played upright bass as well. Uh, I kind of switched from punk rock into the rockabilly stuff. And so, you know, we were part of that whole culture and going out and drinking and partying with all our friends all the time. And then we kind of had split up because the drugs had kind of taken over my life. And we had both moved back to L.A. separately. And then one night she had come to a there used to be a club called the Pretty Ugly Club um, down on Santa Monica Boulevard, which every week they'd have like glam bands playing. One of my bands was playing at the time. And um, and we had run into each other and then kind of gotten back together. And I had gotten cleaned up. So, you know, I would go through periods of being clean and, you know, having jobs. And, you know, as I was working in the restaurant industry and, you know, being a bartender and stuff. So it just it, it was kind of like the same lifestyle, but I could do it and still maintain. You know what I mean? It'd still be wake up at noon, just like if I'm on the road playing with the band. And then, you know, I'd be drinking all night with other people that were drinking all night. So it was never really, you know, this issue until we actually got married. And then, you know, I had. I couldn't get clean. Right. And like, that's what I talk about. It's like when I could have got clean, I didn't want to get clean. And when I wanted to get clean, I couldn't get clean. Mm. And, and when I say that there's a big transition here for the next decade, you guys of like where I started going to AA meetings and for an entire decade, I did not miss more than 90 days of not going to a meeting. I had 16 sponsors in the AA program. I had worked the steps five times completely. I had, 
gone to church. I had, you know, like done all these things. And at the end of that 10 year period, I found myself living in Las Vegas now at 39 years old. I had the, the bedspread nailed up over the window. And my morning routine would be to wake up, take a shot of vodka, throw up in this paint bucket next to the side of my bed, take another shot, throw that up, take a third. Hopefully that one or the fourth one would stay down. I'd snort a half of 80 Oxycontin, smoke a little bit of weed, and then lay in the fetal position for about five minutes and 26 seconds to five minutes and 32 seconds, which was the exact amount of time it would take for all that stuff to finally settle in so I could pull back the covers and just continue on with my life. And at this time, I'm still working, right? I mean, like we had been divorced for almost 10 years at this point in, in that aspect, Jesse. But to answer your question, like this was the transition, man. Like, like I was one of those people that, you know, I thought was never going to get clean and sober, was never going to be able to turn my life around, was never going to be able to, to do anything. It was just like, how tolerable could I make it, right? Every day I'd wake up, right? I'd write suicide notes at, at the end of every day saying, you know, and this just kind of gives you an idea, like... I, at this point, I was so hollow, but yet so thoughtful, right? Like, aren't drug addicts so sensitive? You know what I mean? Like, like, oh, you know, don't hurt their feelings, right? I'm like, oh, don't hurt my feelings. And, and so I'd write notes like, dear whoever finds me, please tell my mom it's not her fault. Tell my sister I love her. Give my cat, Mr. Whiskers, a good home. And I'm sorry if I've caused a mess. Love, Chris. Right? <laughs> like, that's my note. Like, you're going to find that, right? It wasn't like, I hate everybody or... You know, everybody's turned their back on me. Like, you know, I would write these like poetic, you know, and then of course the next morning I'd wake up and not have any money or not have anything else and have a little bit of, you know, whatever I could scrape together and then roll that note up and just, right. And just go back to whatever was starting to start the whole thing over again, you know? And it was, that was, that was, I think the toughest part for me before I finally turned my life around, before we jump into that whole aspect of the show is, is to realize that like I had done everything they had said to do and it still wasn't working. And I had to ask myself, what is wrong with me? Right. Is this a God thing? Right. Is this God punishing me? Because I had been, you know, a, a missionary kid and had gone down this route. Was this, you know, me being um, like, uh, what's the word? I'm like with no self-control. Right. Do I just not have any self-control whatsoever? No willpower. Is this a moral thing? Like, I just, I don't really want it bad enough. Like, I just want to be dirty and, and, you know, a piece of crap my whole life. You know, because that, I think, is what really plays out in a lot of people's life is that they ask themselves, what, why, why me, right? In, in the same way, we always think, like, this has to only be me. That's the number one thing that I hear all the time from people is that, like, I'm the only one. I'm like, you're not the only one. Right. That's why when we share, we have these these amazing podcasts like you guys are doing it and we're sharing all these stories. You realize like what? Oh, my gosh. I felt like that, too, man. I thought I was the only one. And that's like, man, that's the frustrating part. You know, when you talk to kids, when you talk to other people around the country, when I talk to homeless people, you know, just on the street. Right. And it's like, oh, you wouldn't understand, Chris. This never happened. You know, like, oh, yeah, try me. Don't let the fancy hair. Don't let the suit fool you. You know what I mean? Like. Like we all have something in there, right? And it might not be the exact same thing, guys, right? It might not be, you know, maybe you weren't hit over the head with a brick on, you know, third and B one day trying to cop dope from Tompkins Square Park because you were like trying to reenact a Tommy or a Johnny Thunder scene, you know what I mean? But but you still have some kind of a thing in your life that, that we can relate to, right? And, and I think relationships are a big one, you know? Um, 
and, and even you know once i you know like i said you know my wife had kicked me out and the things is i don't harbor anything against her for that as well right like if this wasn't the same as when me and my dad had had separated you know what i mean because that was a parent-child relationship and and that should be looked at different than two adults where one just can't trust the other one. And I don't blame her for that, right? I had lied to her face so many times. There's, I, you know, I can't say that I wouldn't have done the same thing, you know? And, and in retrospect, you know, she always told me, she was, I thought when I kicked you out, you would wise up and actually get more professional help and then come back and you would be okay. I didn't think you would just continue to feel sorry for yourself for the next year, end up on skid row and go through like all new kinds of trauma to where then it made no sense for you to get sober because then you were overwhelmed with all this grief and loss and, and, and shame and, and, you know, and all these other things, right? Does that make more sense? It's unbelievable to me when I hear about people like yourself, like that spirit, which never goes out, which never dies. You know, you say you went through the program, what, five times and you, for 10 years you were trying and you kept, even though you were in your eyes failing, you kept trying to get yourself straight. And that, momentum that you allowed to never die you know despite the fact that there was no hope in your life there was obviously no love for yourself it always blows my mind and i think people would really gain a lot from knowing and hearing from from you how you did find the tools to make that change because you tried and failed so many times but the key is you never gave up but then what was it that final time that set you right you know, I, I used to ask myself this question all the time because I'm like, I can't figure out what it was and I can't figure out why some people get it and some people can't. And I have come up with the one thing that I know works. And I really want to kind of there's two stories that I want to share. We have time for them. I'll try and make them as concise as possible. Well, yeah. But but these are imperative. And this is why, you know, my book is called Prayers, Punk Rock and Pastry. Right. And I put prayers at the top. Because when I when I was laying in that bed in Las Vegas, Nevada, right, on February 7, 2010, and my phone had been, like, ringing all morning, and uh, and I thought it was people that I owed money to, right, because I was at the bottom. I, I told you guys what my morning routine was at that point. And, like, I was just waiting to die, but I couldn't die, right? It was so frustrating. And I, when I opened up my phone, it was instead of it being these people that I thought I owed money to, these dealers, right? It was like friends and family saying, hey, congratulations, the New Orleans Saints are in the Super Bowl. And, and I remember thinking to myself, like, what kind of joke is this? You know what I mean? Because I've been a Saints fan my whole life. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I even got like the whole Saints tattoo. And <clears throat> and and the thing is, I have, I was so out of my mind that I had not even realized it was Super Bowl Sunday and that my team who for, you know, the the first 20 years of me loving them was a complete, you know, they were like the bottom of the barrel. You know what I mean? So for them to even be in the Super Bowl was was like, you know, something like, oh, yeah, very funny. And then, you know, but I had known obviously that they were doing good that year, but I had not known it was Super Bowl Sunday. And so I ended up getting up and, and I was, you know, drug and alcohol sick and throwing up and, you know, all that stuff. I made it to the gas station by my house. I, I spent like my last $8 on whatever booze I could. I went back. I'm sitting there drinking it. And I'm just about halfway through the fourth quarter. I was just, I was out of booze. I was sick. I was angry. And I looked up at my ceiling and I'll never forget this. And I said this prayer, and I don't recommend this, but this is what I did. I said, Hey God, tell you what, if you're still there, you let the saints win the super bowl and I'll turn my life around. If not, 
today is my last day on earth because I can't take living like this anymore. Well, lo and behold, 15 minutes later, they had an interception and they scored a touch and they ended up winning the Super Bowl, right? So then I'm like terrified because I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, listen, okay, I'd like to put a little couple things on that last thing that I, I said to you. You know what I mean? Because, because like you came through on your end of the deal, but I don't know how I'm going to come through on my end of the deal, right? Because I've been trying this for 10 years. I'm laying incapacitated at 39 years old. I got no money coming in. I got nobody to lean on, you know, and I, I wanted to die. I actually thought that's what was going to happen. And, and that is really how I started to turn my life around. Right. Because it was like almost out of that fear of like, I can't let God down now because like he actually came through for once he came through right. Uh, in my own mind. And, and so, you know, within two weeks I had, I, had, you know, just kind of gone through this detox of, you know, you know, detox is messy, man. Like, you know, no drug addict will ever just quit voluntarily. Let's just be honest, right? Like there's no, you can't see anything to anybody where they just go, okay, you know what? I'm going to give up heroin or, or crystal meth or whatever it is, just cold turkey and I'll be fine. No, because you have to go through this withdrawal process that is so horrific. And that's why most people stay addicted to drugs is because they can't go through this detox period, man. It's, it's just, it's like, I would say it's like food poisoning times a thousand, right? Just like, you know, the stuff you go through, the hallucinations, the sweaty, the diarrhea, the vomiting, projectile, you know, like nobody can deal with that for that amount of time. It's just, it's almost inhumane. But, you know, when, when I got to San Diego and I started to turn my life around, that was like the first story that I kind of wanted to share, right? So just so we get an idea of like how this kind of miracle happened. And I say miracle because if you look at the definition of a miracle is an act or event that can only be held responsible by God. Like we can't explain it. And, and I can't explain how this has come to, to fruit, right? Or to, to bear this fruit. And I, I would and say life itself is a miracle. A hundred percent. The, you know? the gift of life and being here awake in the, the moment is, is a miracle. Every day is a miracle. A hundred percent. Right. And, and these are things that, that we can't explain it. And like you said, life is a miracle. Right. And that's why we should be so much more excited about it. You know what I mean? Like, like, I wish we could all just be this excited about it because you don't even realize like, yeah, we'll, we'll get into that in a minute. But so that, that was the first one. Right. And, and the second one is that when I had about six or seven months of sobriety, guys, I, I had been invited to go to see a concert and I hadn't been to a concert sober ever I don't think and I was supposed to go with this girl and you know and things just didn't work out but I had already gone down to the show right I got my ticket and you know I, it's funny because I was going to see Social Distortion my favorite band you know and um and I had on a zoot suit you know what I mean like Jim Carrey in the mask you know what I mean because I, I was trying <laughs> to out show everybody right? I was coming back strong and sober I'm like oh I'm gonna show everybody right and of course I show up and it's like my first kind of concert in San Diego sober and I walk in right and everybody else is got on like shorts and t-shirts. You know what I mean? Like this wasn't LA. This wasn't, you know, I, I felt like I looked like so out of place. You know what I mean? And so I started getting these panic attacks because everybody had two things I didn't. And they had a date and they had a drink. Right. And not only do I look like Bozo the Clown, but I got <laughs> no drink and I got no date, right? You got no crutch. And, um, yeah, exactly. And and I'll never forget this, right? And so what happened was, is that after about halfway through the second band, guys, and I just couldn't breathe. I, I couldn't breathe. I was like this. I can't do this, man. And I and I ran out of the House of Blues here in San Diego. And as I was walking away from from the venue, I went, what are you doing, man? I said, you can't leave music behind. Like, you know, like I would rather be a homeless heroin addict 
and at least have music in my life, punk rock, whatever, than to be sober and not have that in my life. I, it, I've had it my entire life. Music has always been my number one solution, right? Like, I mean, I left home at 15 because my dad wouldn't let me listen to punk rock or have long hair. And, and I, you know, like everything I had done, like a lot of the relationship with my wife and, and other females had been based on, hey, I'm going on tour, can't promise anything. Hey, I'm a rock and roller. You got to learn to accept my drug and alcohol use. Hey, you know what I mean? Like I based it all on that lifestyle. And, and the thing is, is that if I got sober, I wasn't going to leave behind all the good stuff with music. You know what I mean? Because it had been literally my oxygen my entire life. And I remember I smoked cigarettes at the time and I had a cigarette and I was just standing there in the middle of the street. And I'm like, OK, you know what? Remember that last time you prayed? I'm like, let's try that again. And I said, hey, God, tell you what, this is my prayer. I said, I'm, I can't give up punk rock music. I can't. And I said, and the thing is, is that I'm going to go back in there. I said, but when I do, I said, I don't care if you keep me sober. I said, but let me help somebody else. I said, that's what I told somebody told me once. If you help other people, then you will be OK as well. I said, so let, there has to be somebody else in this punk rock concert that's going through something that they need to talk to somebody about. Let me be the one. So I walked back in. And, and I got down there and, and the second band had just finished. And it was right before Social D came on. And, and so it kind of, you know, people were in different little groups. And I looked over at the corner of my eye. I saw a, like a dad standing there, right? And I knew he was a dad because he's a little bit older. And he had like, you know, he looked like somebody's dad, right? He wasn't a, a punk rocker. And, and all of a sudden, like less than a minute later, the guy standing right behind me he said, excuse me. And I was like, yeah, what's up, man? And uh, sometimes I get emotional still telling the story years later, but. He said, uh, I could tell by the way you're dressed, right? And this is how I knew that uh, you probably know who the band is. I said, actually, yeah, I do. And uh, he said, you know about their lead singer? And I said, uh, like, what about him? He said, well, the, you know, he used to be a heroin addict and uh, he's clean now. And I said, no, actually, no, I did know that. And, uh, and he said, you know, I don't know how I, if I could tell you this or not, man, but, um, you know, I'm here because my son Nick just died of a heroin overdose a week ago. And he had these two tickets up on the refrigerator to come see this band. He said, because when he was sober, clean and sober, he, this band would inspire him. And I came down here today to see if there was something that this singer would say that I could have told my son before he killed himself. Wow. And I was just like, oh, right, like right to the heart. And I was like, I'm like, you know, God, listen, these, these prayers, man, you, you can go a little bit lighter on me. I was thinking maybe like, a little, you know, I was thinking maybe like a little 15 year old kid who was having trouble with vaping or something would come up to me and we'd be buddies. You know what I mean? Like, I was, I was there some dad to come and just pour his heart out. You know what I mean? And um, that's really and intense, but that's incredibly beautiful, man. That's a beautiful moment right there. Yeah, and it was, you guys. I can't. And, and, and you know, when I looked right at him, I said, man, I said, what's your name? He said, Jim. I said, hey, listen, man, my name's Chris. I said, you got a minute? He said, yeah. I said, sit down. I said, let me tell you a story. And I was able to sit down, and, you know, in the, like the five or ten minutes before the band started. I said, I don't have a dad, you know, because I left home and I was angry and, and this. And I've been into punk rock and I'm a heroin addict, too. And, and you don't even know this, Jim, but like five minutes ago, I just went up and, and gave up a random Hail Mary prayer that God could help me help somebody else today and that I could stay sober. And then you just walk right up to me. I said, none of this stuff is by mistake. And um. I said, listen, you don't have a son. I don't have a dad. You want to team up and maybe we can help each other. And um, and, and I'm so proud to announce, you know, here we are 11 years later and I call him Jim dad and, and we still get lunch, you know, a couple times a year and, and we're in each other's lives and, and I've helped him heal and he's helped me heal. And, and it's uh, you know, it's just a crazy thing. And, um, 
you know, but that's the power of prayer. I think, you know what I mean? That a lot of people don't really appreciate. And, and the reason why I bring that up is because I think that the number one key for me in my recovery process has been prayer, right? Has been prayer and meditation. It's like every morning I wake up every single morning I wake up. That's why I wore this shirt today. I see I'm wearing my dropkick Murphy shirt, but I, Every morning when I wake up, I listen to Amazing Grace by the Dropkick Murphys. Every single morning. I never miss a day. And then I pray and I meditate. And the thing is, is that, that that wasn't something normal for me. Like, so don't picture me all of a sudden having this like nice little Buddha, you know, little area in my house with waterfalls and candles. And, and I'm just naturally, no, like I'm a ADD out of my mind, rock and roller. So like for me to sit still for even like 30 seconds is almost impossible, right? But I had to train myself because I didn't want to keep relapsing, right? I, I was like, that was the only thing that I hadn't done, right? I had gone to the AA meetings. I had sponsored people. I had a sponsor. I had gone to church. I had done all those other things, and I still couldn't stay sober. But the thing that I had never done was that prayer and that meditation. And so I literally started with like 30 seconds at a time. I would set my phone for 30 seconds, and I would just literally breathe, right? Like, and I'd look at my phone and be like, oh, my gosh, it's only been seven seconds. It feels like 10 minutes. You know what I mean? And then I would make it to 30 seconds and I'd be like, OK. And then I would say some kind of prayer typically. And just because so people get an idea, something simple like, dear God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the sunshine. Uh, thank you for the food that I'm going to eat. Done. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and it was like that because it, it says you just need to make a, a, a conscious contact with a power greater than yourself. Right. And, and to me, that's what it was, because you got to remember, guys, I still had a lot of animosity towards the Christian God at this point. I still had a lot of animosity towards organized religion. I still had a lot of animosity towards myself and my father and all these things. Right. This this had not none of that had been solved yet when I started to do these little prayers and things like that in the last you know, eight years now. They have been solved. But uh, it's one of people to really get an idea of that. You know what I mean? Like. Because when I used to hear prayer meditation, right, I'd picture some dude, some guru, right, with a white robe and, and, and all this stuff. I'm like, I don't have that. I don't even have a candle, bro. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, how can I do that? And it's like, you know, I would literally just sit outside on, on you know, in, in the yard or whatever with like the sun coming down on me and pretend that that was some kind of like Holy Spirit or, or whatever. And, and, and it's so important to see how that little bit, right, I just kept adding to it. Every day, a little bit, 30 seconds turned into 35, turned into 45 seconds, turned into a full minute, right? I thought, oh, I'm like a guru now. I can sit here for a whole minute, you know? And, but, but the thing is that I want to get back to that is that, you know, when I wake up every day in my morning routine, it's a, you know, like, like I said, I crank Amazing Grace by Dropkick Murphys. That's my alarm clock music, right? And it's like, because that ties to me and my relationship with God, which is super solid. But also it allows me to embrace myself as a punk rocker. Mm. You know what I mean? And it's like because my whole life people have told me you can't be both. Right. You can't be Christian. You can't be a punk. Rocker. I'm like, that's not true. Mm. And and I feel like and it's not that I'm trying to like say you have to be a Christian and a punk rocker or have to be Christian and a metalhead or have to be any of these kind of things. I'm just saying be who you are. God created each of us special and unique. If you're a Christian and punk rocker, guess what? That means you're the only one. 
<laughs> right? But we know not because now they got bands that are, you know, I, I wish we could have had bands, you know, that are like, so like August Burns Red or something, you know what I'm saying? Those other bands that are like Christian hardcore bands. Like, we didn't have that when I was growing up, man. We had Amy Grant. You know what I'm talking about? Like, <laughs> <laughs> we had like Amy yeah. Grant. We had like Tetra, right? Like, we had these like, like, you didn't want to be a part of that. You know what I mean? Like, you couldn't be hardcore. And, you know, and, and so. The, the point I'm just making, though, is is that I like, do know, by the way, people. Amy Grant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, Carry on. You know, back in those days, like nobody wanted, like that wasn't who I was trying to be. Absolutely. And um, but but the point is that you know that I want to make is, like I said, you got to be yourself. You got to know what your truth is, right? And, and and then you have to have something to believe in to carry you forward, right? And and I think you know, Matt, you said it so eloquently earlier, like. That spirit that's in me has always been in me. I just didn't know where to put it, right? It was just always 100 miles an hour in every direction, and I could never figure out what it was meant for, what was the purpose until now, right? And now I know what that purpose is. It's to give that amount of energy and enthusiasm and hope to all the people that I come into contact with, right? It's, it's to change the face of addiction. It's to change the stigmas. You know what I mean? Like we hear these stigmas that are so ridiculous, you know, like, Oh, depressed people are always suicidal or, or anxious people are, are scared of their shadow or or that they can't even function or that Christians are hypocrites or or that, you know, drug addicts are all homeless bums. Like this is the stuff that we really need to work on. Right. Because none of that is true. Right. Like all three of us are all can sit here and say we have some form of spirituality. We've all been depressed. We all have anxiety and, and we've all dabbled in something other than, you know, reading the Bible. Let's just put it at that. <laughs> shall we? Right. Yeah. And and I can tell you right now, just from, you know, hanging out with you guys for like the last 45 minutes or whatever. I also know that anytime, you know, you guys need something, you could call me and vice versa. Right. Regardless of, of whatever the circumstance, not like we're like, you know, best friends yet. But I'm just saying, like, this is the only, we're only planting a seed today, right? I know I will see you guys again at some point. I know that we will work on other projects together at some point, right? And, and all these things, because that's how you change it. Mm. And, and that's what people need to understand, right? Like, you can help one person. And like I said, I went to a social distortion concert. Why? Not to help out some dad that just lost his kid from a heroin overdose. No, I went because I love punk rock and because I thought I was going to meet this hot chick. That was it, right? But but it's like, how does God turn these things around, right? And to answer one other question, I think is really important because I know, especially like with a lot of stuff you guys deal with and on the show, there's a lot of father and son. This, you know what I mean? And I think that's just the part of our society, right? Dads and sons are always going to argue. I mean, there's a reason why they call it mama's boy and daddy's girl, right? You never hear somebody going, oh, he's a daddy's boy. I've never heard that term, right? No, ever. Um, it's because, you know, that that whole dynamic is, is such a power struggle, you know, for both women as the daughter and mom and also men as the son and father. But, you know, about four years ago, you know, I had not talked to my dad in over eight years. Right. And, and we had never gotten along ever. And, you know, we had tried a couple of times, but it just hadn't worked out. And I was at a conference with a guy by the name of Jack Canfield. You guys probably know him from, uh, he wrote those books called Chicken Soup for the Soul. You guys ever heard of those books? Yep. And, and he was talking about forgiveness and, and he said it in a different way that I had never heard. Right. Which he, he said that, you know, forgiveness isn't the condoning of the behavior or it's not, you know, accepting any 
thing from the other person. It's letting yourself be free from that person holding you back any further. And I'm like, oh, you know what? I actually want that type of forgiveness, right? Because I had tried to figure out how to forgive my dad for literally 20 years and I could not figure it out, right? And so I, so the next morning out of the blue, like I said, I hadn't talked to him in eight years at this point. I'm like, what, 45 years old, I think is this age. And, you know, and I call up my dad at like 730 in the morning. And this is how the phone call goes, right? He, he answers, he goes, is this Chris? I said, yeah, hey, what's up, Pop? It's me. I said, listen, I'm not calling because I want to like be your buddy. I'm not calling because I want us to have a, a relationship at all. I said, I'm just calling because you need to know something. And that is, is I forgive you. Right from my bottom of my heart, I honestly forgive you for what happened in our life and the way you treated me and, and all the stuff you've done in your life. Because I understand now you had a lot of trauma you never dealt with. And now that I've worked through it and I'm a therapist and I help all these people, I said, now, now I can see that. And I just wanted you to know. And, um, and if I can ever help you with that, please let me know. That's all I wanted to say. And as I was about ready to hang up, right, he goes, son, how did you know? He goes, I'm sitting here on a Sunday morning at 7.30. He goes, your mom divorced me. I got fired from being a missionary. I haven't been to church in years. And I'm sitting here drinking wine out of a coffee cup waiting to die. He goes, I got no friends. I got nobody. He goes, would you please help me? Once again, right? I'm like, God, I just wanted to call and tell this guy I forgave him. And then, and then hang up the phone, man. Why do you keep doing this stuff to me, man? I can't take it anymore. You know what I mean? And, and I was like, yeah you know what? I will help you. And, and, and that, you know, that went through a whole nother process that, that we did. And, you know, and we were able to, you know, we never became best friends again, but I was able to help him with a lot of his stuff. And he was able to get sober and, and go back to the church and, and get remarried and, 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 you know, get his life back together before he ended up passing away of cancer a couple of years ago. But, but I'm convinced that if I, and not even I, but if God hadn't put me in his life to help all that stuff, his soul would have been that same negative thing. And it would just kept repeating the cycle. You know what I mean? We broke that family toxic shame by doing this work together. And you know what had happened? I just want, so I can share with the listeners. So you understand the kind of trauma I'm talking about is that when I had an older brother that was born two years before me. And um, <clears throat> so my dad, I think was about eight and my mom must've been 17. And my older brother was born stillborn. So he had the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck. You know, and this is like back in like, I don't know, the late sixties or whatever. So they didn't really have all the technology and the baby died three hours later. And so my dad had called home and said, Hey, sorry, you know, the baby died and, and, uh, you know, I'll be home later. And they're like, okay, we'll see you here. And when my dad got home that night, you know, it was about nine o'clock or whatever. And he walked in and the house was dark and he thought that was kind of weird. Cause he thought they'd be waiting up for him. And he noticed the light on in the back of the house. So he went back there. And he found my grandfather had shot himself um, and, and, and had died. And, my, and so my dad on that one day had lost his son and had lost his father. And he wow. had no explanation why. Right. He thought, and so he thought, you know, what I ended up finding out all the way at the very end of his life was that he actually thought that his grand or that his dad had killed himself because of the embarrassment that my dad had had a child out of wedlock. Right. Just to show you how deep these seeds run. Right. And so my dad's entire life, he had kept that. And so my dad had always been kind of a closet alcoholic, you know, what they call like a binge drinker. You know, he wouldn't drink all the time, but when he did, he would always get drunk. And, um, you know, and there'd been some infidelity in the marriage and stuff when my dad had been drinking and things like that. And so, you know, it's just interesting to see, you know, because they always say that 
addiction is a family disease. A lot of times you hear that or that, you know, like, you know, it's generational. And, and once again, I come back and I say the addiction is not generational, but the toxic family shame is. And so if you come from a family that has a lot of shame or has a lot of, you know, challenges and things like that, then chances are alcohol or drugs will be your solution as well, because that's how you've seen other people handle it. But there's there's never been any scientific knowledge that I know of, at least, uh, that there's actually an alcoholic or an addict gene in your body that you're just born with. Right. But there is that generational, you know, addiction or alcoholism that I think can, you know, kind of put you more towards that because that's how you've always seen people identify with, if that makes sense. But anyway, this that the reason I wanted to share a story about my dad is because you never know how God is going to use you in other people's lives, right? Like if you had told me at 15, like, Hey, in 30 years from now, you're going to come back and actually save your dad's life when he's almost suicidal sitting on his couch. I'd be like, let him die. (laughs) (laughs) That's the other interesting point there, Chris, is that like that person that you harbor resentment or hatred for, you don't necessarily know their struggle and their pain. Right. And that's true of everybody in this world, everybody that we see, And we've spoken about this on the show before, but it's like before you jump to conclusions about someone, try and see, you know, at least if not their perspective, some of their pain. Yeah, 100%. And and I'm glad you brought that up because that was the thing that, you know, I was getting to is that you have no idea, you know, because we never talked about it growing up, right? Like I knew I had a brother and he was born, you know, and he had died, but you know, the whole thing with my grandpa, like we never talked about that, you know, like, oh, he died, this and that. And, and we knew how, but, you know, we never addressed it. We never talked about it. And and so I, I never thought it was a problem, right, for my dad. But obviously, you know, like I said, we have no idea what other people are going through. And it's like if we just give one, it, it's literally like we say, hey, are you OK? And then give them the space to be like, no, I'm not OK or 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 whatever they want to say. Right. It's like that that's the real depth of that connection that we talk about or this or or you know what we want to go back to like let's talk about that's the real depth of of the hardcore community you know what i mean because like that's what they believe in. it's like when they sing kill switch songs when they sing you know not when they sing hate breed when they sing you know social distortion when they sing rancid they're crying out some part that identifies with that story, right? Like we're all these storytellers. And it's like when they identify with that, that gives them a moment to what? Carry on, right? That's the secret, man. That's the magic that a lot of people don't understand because you don't see that necessarily in, in other genres of music. And I'm not putting other genres down, but I'm saying, you know, like, you know, if you look at like hip hop and stuff, there's, there's not a whole lot of like loyalty or, or camaraderie in hip hop, right? Because it's all about, I have the best, I'm the best, you're not as good as me. Like, you know, and, you know, and that's just their thing. I'm not, like I said, I'm not, I don't put people down, but that that's the one thing about, I think that, that with the hardcore or punk rock and, and metal and things like that is that we've always been like, hey, we've already been knocked down. Let's, let's try and rise up. You know what I mean? And, and things like that. And, you know, and he, then, you know, if you want to be sad, you listen to country music, you know, I mean, I love country music. Don't get me wrong, like Johnny Cash and all that stuff. But man, that stuff can be depressing after a while, you know, what I mean? like, you know, and, and so, you know, and even if you look at like faith based music, you know what I mean? Like some of that stuff is is really, you know, you know, grossly sweet and, and syrupy and, 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 and positive. But at the same time, if you're having a bad day, man, and, and you hear a couple of those songs, it helps. It really does, you know. And it's coming from a hardcore punk rocker. Sometimes I'll, I'll put it on that station and be like, okay, I feel better, but I can only take so much. You know what I mean? Let's go back to the hard stuff, you know what I mean? Or whatever that is. 
But, you know, it just once again, getting back to what you guys always talk about on the show, and that is the power of music and healing, you know, and, and I think obviously there has to be other things that come in with that. But it's, it's such a beautiful platform, music in, in the way that, you know, you can really share it with people. And, and, you know, and all of a sudden millions of people have understand what you were going through and they identify. That's what this whole thing's about. Right. That's what makes a band popular. It's not looks or, or equipment or you know, where they're from or anything like that necessarily, man. It, it's about the message and, and, and how they present themselves to the fans. You know what I mean? Like that, that to me, that really has always been a, a big one. Yeah. To me, just an extraordinary story, first of all. And I, I love your energy and your positivity and you have a lot of deep wisdom. Um, and I, I want to say two things that really struck out for me that really I can relate to. And you said it in such a way where I have said this before in the podcast, I've said it in conversations that I've had with people, but the way you presented it with meditation and prayer, I thought that was brilliant because I think a lot of people do. Like if you talk to somebody who was, you know, born and raised in the church like myself, like my dad's a minister and a retired minister, I grew up praying. I grew up with that stuff. And you meet somebody who's never been a part of that and you talk to them about prayer. A lot of people are intimidated by that idea. In, in the mm. same in the same breath, a lot of people are intimidated by the word meditation. You know, and, and it's like you said that you picture this, like you got to be holier than thou, like in robes with the candle. And it's really not about any of that shit. And I've learned so much in my life from prayer and meditation, especially when I owned it on my own outside of my upbringing, when I pulled away and rebelled as a kid and then sort of like came back into my faith and then like waxed and waned. And when I finally started to own it, to question it, to really digest it, I could see the power of prayer outside of what a religion taught me, you know, and see that it actually does work and the power of just intention in your brain, sitting still and putting out something with your brain, even just on a scientific level, there's power to that and taking, mm -hmm. taking time to be mindful. And I think that's really important. Um, and that's one thing that really struck for me that when you were saying that, I was like, what a great way to put it, like 30 seconds sitting still and then, throwing out a prayer, just saying something. It doesn't even have to be this formal thing. When you hear like my dad pray, it's incredible. Everyone's always like, dad, <laughs> yeah, right. dad is like this incredible prayer. And like, I get it. And, you know, I get a little bit from him too, but like a prayer can just be like, Hey, I'm fucked up. I need help. Like help. Like that's a yeah. prayer. It can be anything. And I, I love that. And you, in the story you've told, and so your book, remind me of the name of your book again. It's called Prayers, Punk Rock, and Pastry. You talk about your life story in there. Is that what that's about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I need to get that book. I I just think it's oh. fascinating what you've what you've shared with us, and again, your energy. It's infectious, dude. You definitely are the whole <laughs> I feel it. No, it's a real PMA, a real positive vibe to you, and you're, but you do it with wisdom. It's not hokey. It's very very genuine, and I I just. I've already just felt like I've learned something from you on this and I love your story and I love that you show the power of prayer and the will of God, if you will, when you surrender that moment where you were like, I just, I'm done. That's when the real, yeah. when the real work starts to happen. And I just think it's a great example of what you've shared. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. Like I said, man, it, it's been an honor and uh, I would love to send you both uh, autographed copies of my book. You know what I mean? Like that, Anybody that wants a copy, you know, respond to the show or whatever. Um, I mean, you can buy it on Amazon and stuff too, but 
personally, I would like to give you guys a little autograph one, you know what I mean? Just so you have it. Cause you know, this has been an honor for me and you know, the one thing, if I could give you guys something just to kind of take with you today that has been really beneficial to me besides all the other stuff that we've been talking about is that I always need to remember that other people don't know what I know, mm. if that makes sense. So many times, you know, like even going into today, I'm like, well, I, maybe we'll talk about this. Or I don't even know what we're going to talk about. Right. But I'm like, oh, they probably already heard that or they probably already know that. And we got to remember, man, people don't know. You know, like like 80 percent of the people out there, when, when we talk about our experience or when we try and, and pass along, like, you know, like Jesse's talking about like a little bit of wisdom is like they're like, what? I never heard that before. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I almost didn't tell you because I thought you knew. You know what I mean? And, and, and when you know, since you guys have such a great platform and to do this, but I, I would just encourage you in, in, you know, in all the shows you do after this and for the next decades or, or you know and, and anything else you're doing what you're sharing with friends or family or you know at the monster truck rally which is awesome i love monster trucks or, or that you know on, on tour which i can't the thing wait to with see those shows is like because i don't have kids and i never spend time around kids and all the shows that i do are all very adult orientated right not porn right. or anything weird but just gigs yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and th these monster truck shows are so family friendly and there's an infectiousness to the mood in those shows a lot like you know less adult in content but a lot like what i felt here today just like pure joy pure yeah. joy and that's what's the really cool thing about those shows just yeah as a quick adage is it's just about pure joy and like true happiness yeah no a hundred percent and i think like you nailed it right on the head man and this is like you know and the thing is is that th we're starting small right just the three of us but like what's the ripple of impact on this show right like I'm going to go tell probably 200 people in the next couple of days. Like I was on this awesome podcast and tell you guys, right. And then you're going to go to the monster truck rally and say, man, you got to tell this. And Jesse's going to be on stage and he's going to be, you know, in different towns, like, Oh, you know, like, and so like that collective right there is like what we really need to keep the momentum going. Right. That's how, that's how I always picture. Like I would say it doesn't matter. And, you know, I learned this once again, I hate to keep going back to the punk rock stuff, but I learned this early on. It's like, it doesn't matter if I'm playing at the house of blues or if I'm playing at SoFi Stadium, or if I'm playing at somebody's basement, the message is always the same, mm. right? It, it, I, if there's one person or there's 50,000, the message is always the same. And I need to remember that because that's an anointing on me, right? Like not everybody has that gift. And, and I think that people that do really need to take that responsibility, kind of like what James talking about, we need to harbor that responsibility and be like, hey, I've been anointed with this and it doesn't matter if I'm talking to one or 50,000, the message needs to be the same because I have no idea if that one is going to inspire the next 50,000 or if those 50,000 aren't even going to care. And then I didn't spin it on that one, right? Because that's usually always how it goes. It's always the opposite, right? Oh, this is going to be the best show because we're playing here. And you get there and not one person even acknowledges you, right? And then you get to another town and you're like, oh, this is going to suck. These people are a bunch of hicks. Like and they show up with like banners. <laughs> I can't wait to see you, right? You're like, oh my God, they got this. You know what I mean? Like, and you're like, like they make you dinner and you're like, oh, this is so great. You know, it's like going to Europe compared to America. You know, like you're, you play in Europe, right? And they invite you over and nurse you the family. They have homemade meals, you know. You play L.A. and get stuck in traffic. Nobody cares. You go on late and then they bump you and they don't give you any drink tickets. You're like, oh, yeah, great. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Yeah, you never know. You never know. I think the, the message here is is just to, to move forward into your life with, with a pure heart. And your story of, of surrendering and then giving 
you know, you're doing God's work. It's great. It's beautiful. It's infectious. It picked me up and picked my spirits up today. And you definitely got me uh, thinking about some things too. So I think that's, what's important. It's that ripple effect. You know, yeah. the fact that just the three of us are talking now, but when this goes out there, hopefully it'll reach thousands of people and, you know, someone in there might really need to hear your story and what you had to say today. And that's what's always important. I think with what we do here, even on days when I'm exhausted or just not in the mood. And then the moment I start engaging with people and hearing their stories, that inspiration just comes out naturally. And that's what I love about what we do here and obviously what you're doing. So I, I got to say this. So how do people get in touch with you if they want to get in touch with you to hear about your story or to just pick your brain about something? Are you, you know, plug, plug away, please. Cause I want people to be able yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you can find me uh, on Facebook. I, uh, you know, it's Chris Stewart on Facebook. Um, I, I can't, my picture, I think it has me in a tuxedo. I'm speaking somewhere, um, but you'll see it. Uh, it's real obvious. Um, you can go to my Instagram, which is the number one, and then the word hope dealer. So it's just number one hope dealer. Uh, and then I have a website and that is www.chrisstewartworldwide.com. So just one word, chrisstewartworldwide.com. Uh, like I said, because I'm, I'm a speaker and stuff. So that has, how to, you know, if you want to book me to speak at your event, convention, church, whatever, uh, you can get a hold of me through there. I always return every message and every response, regardless if it's on Facebook or Instagram. I'm real, you know, I learned that once again from being in a band. You know what I mean? It's like everybody matters. And uh, and I, I stick around till the very end uh, and, re- and respond to everybody regardless. Um, so please don't feel that like I'm too busy or he's probably doing this or that. He doesn't care about me. You are the need, you know, if you just heard this, then you're the one that needs to look me up and, and send me a message because you're the people that I want to talk to. Um, Love it. So that's it. Yeah. Chris Stewart. Hope dealer. So it's, dude, the hope dealer. I'm sorry. I'm just going to say it again. Perfect for you. <laughs> yeah, right. And truly, you know? truly you live up to that name, dude. Like, you know, I think a name like that could be used as a moniker and a kind of ironic or, you know, throwaway kind of a way but you truly embody that i just want to say real quick i'm pretty early on in my i don't know whether i would call it a sober journey but it's been a couple of months since i've had a drink and i'm in a good i'm in a good place with it i feel no desire to go down that road again right now i don't feel like there's anything lacking in my life i feel like i'm gaining you know an infinite list of stuff but just listening to your story today is really like it stoked my fire, for lack of a better phrase. In a big way, you brought me to tears a couple of times. And um, it's been really, I think Jesse's said it all, but I just wanted to reinforce the fact that today's been a real lesson in like strength and character and wisdom. Um, and the final thing that I want to ask you is yeah. how, how and when does pastry come into play because we we've covered prayer we've covered punk rock what's the deal with pastry perfect i can't believe we almost left that out it's like the important part you know what i mean i feel like we're just talking and talking and i'm like i could go on forever like i said but so pastry comes in so when i first got sober uh you know like sweets have been like my number one addiction, I guess, for my, my whole life or whatever. And what I mean by that is that was my emotional coping mechanism, right? Like being five years old, getting a cookie from mom, like, oh, this is the best, right? Like, and just over the years, I've always just had this thing for donuts and cake and all that fun stuff. But when I got sober, you know, I one of my rewards that I would do for staying sober is that I would go and buy like a cupcake or cinnamon rolls happened to be like my thing, right? 
But at the time, you know, like you go to these these bakeries and, it, you know, cupcakes went up from like 75 cents to like five dollars now. You know what I'm saying? And so, you know, it's like and I didn't have a lot of money because I was poor and sober. And, and so, you know, I would buy these pastries and, you know, and I take them home and be like, this thing is dry. This is no good. Like, well, I can't believe I spent five dollars. I started getting angry. You know what I mean? And so I said, you know what? I'm just going to do this myself. And so I just started to bake on my own. Right. And I, I bake cakes for like sober people. And, and cupcakes for, for friends or whatever. And, and people started to like, go, Hey man, these are really good. Why don't you do this for my birthday party? Or why don't you do this for, you know, this, all this, you know, events or whatever. So I just started doing it. And the first year I was sober for Christmas, I, I love Christmas cookies. And so I went to the 99 cent store and which is like a store, you know, where everything's 99 cents. And I had about, I think $9. We call it Poundland seven. over here. That's what we got. Poundland. Uh, <laughs> that called? I love that. That's a better name, man. Nine Nine Cents is weak. Poundland. That's where it's at. Man. I like that. <laughs> but so I bought seven rolls of this, like you know, the little sugar cookie roll dolls or whatever, and some frosting, and made these little Christmas cookies. And I went and passed them out to homeless people. And I, I made about twenty-five little bags, right? And it's funny because I'm telling them the whole story, right? Like, hey, I'm sober. I'm doing this to help you out and like let you know that you know God loves you and I love you and you know. Keep your head up. And every single person did this. Hey, man, these cookies got weed in them. <laughs> I'm like, no, they don't have weed. You guys are missing the whole story, you know. But the whole point was is that I started that the first year. And within three years, I built up this company called Buns and Roses. And that was my name, Buns and Roses Baking Company. And within three years, we passed out over 200 bags of cookies to homeless people at Christmas time. I ended up starting uh, to do uh, – to help at-risk teens learn how to bake so they had like a job skill, right? And, and so they could put something on their resume to get jobs at, at better places. And also for adults that needed second chances. So I would employ them to come work for me. We started doing like skating events. We started doing like all this stuff. And by 2016, I had built that company into one of the top 200 entrepreneurial companies in the country. And, and the thing was, it was cool, but also kind of weird for me was that they were very specific in saying your company is not an entrepreneur because you made a lot of money. Your company is an entrepreneur because you helped the most people that we could find. Like, you know what I mean? Like from grassroots, like all the kids that, that wrote in and said that you helped them out and, and all the high schools you spoke at about how, you know, just turning a cookie into can help somebody's day and all this stuff. So I was there with like guys like Gary V, you know what I mean? Like he's like sitting next to me. I'm like, Oh, Gary Vaynerchuk, you know what I mean? Like that guy's out of his mind, you know what I mean? And, and, and you know, and guys from like, you know, Google and stuff. And they're like, oh, we, you know, we have 800 trillion. I'm like, you know, I had to borrow some money to actually get here. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, you guys want some cookies though? You know what I mean? <laughs> and, but, but it was just cool on how we all came together. You know what I mean? Like, dude, like, like teach us how to connect with our clients, right? Like we, we need help doing that because we might have all this money, but we don't know how to connect with people and, you know, and you don't have the money and maybe we can help you with that, but you know how to relate to people, you know? And I said, listen, this is all just because I like cookies and, and cupcakes, man. And, and I got to uh, teach classes at like William Sonoma, which is kind of like a cool kitchen store, you know, that they do. And uh, I don't know, man, it was just, that's anyway, that's where the pastry comes in, comes in or whatever. And, um, and how that was like a big part of my sobriety. And so actually what happened was, is I, I spoke in high schools, uh, about buns and roses and that kind of took off so well as a motivational speaker that that's how I became a speaker and then somebody said hey you need to write a book and I said hey man 
if you've heard my story, I dropped out of school uh, back in 1985 at sophomore year. I don't know how to barely write. And they're like, you're missing the point. Your book is a story that people can take with them after you speak to them. So that way they can remember what you said to inspire them. So quit being selfish. I went, point taken. And so I figured out how to write a book and I wrote it and it was terrible. And then people came in and there were friends of mine that actually knew how to write and went, hey, why don't we change this? And why don't we change this? And, you know, and, and it's still probably not the easiest read, but it's genuine. And cool. um, and, and that's kind of how this whole thing kind of spiraled. So anyway, that's to, to answer your question. That's where the pastry comes in, man. It, the pastry actually was the number one thing that kind of inspired the whole speaking and and then the book and, and then everything else. But, uh, you know, it started with prayers, was fueled by punk rock. And then the pastry came along and was the icing on the cake, so to speak. That's a great way to leave it right there. What an extraordinary story. Thank you so much for coming on. What a pleasure, man. Thank yeah, you I do. We'll, we'll link the book up in the episode description. And um, yeah, I'm sure we'll see you, man. When we do some live events stateside, you'll be there. We hope this has been a truly fucking amazing conversation, man. It's, it's empowered and inspired me no end. So thank you so much, man. This has been brilliant. Hey, anytime you guys need anything, seriously, and I'm just saying that, man, please let me know. If you guys, you know, you have somebody in your family or friends that's going through some tough times around any of the stuff we talked about today, give them my number. You know, I'll make sure that we, we trade contact info. Like I said, I'd, I'd love to send you both books. Um, you know, anything I, I can ever do, uh, you know, to help out with any of your community or, or events or, or anything, man, please never hesitate to call me. I w- it would be an honor for me. So hopefully, uh, like I said, we'll see each other at events and, uh, and definitely Jesse, I'll, I'm sure I'll probably see you, uh, at one of the shows coming up. I like what you said earlier, like we got all this backlog of stuff that we're just trying to get out of the way for like the last two years. I, I keep getting these emails from like Delta Airlines saying, hey, you have $600 worth of airline things that need to be used by next Tuesday. I'm like, what? I didn't even know I had these. They're like, well, yeah, because you postponed all these flights. I got I got concert tickets. I think I still have concert tickets from my Twisted Sister that have been postponed for five years. I'm still trying to cash those in. You know yep. what I mean? And they've so, retired from the road, sadly. So that ship has definitely yeah. sailed. Um, it, Chris, it the conversation will continue, my friend. Thank you so much. And um Keep doing what you do. Keep shining the light out there in the world. We need you. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. As always, I like to end it with rock on and God bless. Thank you so much for having me on. I'll talk to you guys soon. Take care. Take care, brother. Peace. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Manny's and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. 
Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies.